James Holman here from The Washington Post. For a bonus episode of Please Go On, we're trying something a little different. Readers and listeners have been sending in lots of great questions about the Delta variant of COVID and what it means, especially for kids as they go back to school. So post-contributing columnist Lena Wen and I turned to a place where we could answer some questions live and then bring those answers to you here on this podcast. Dr. Wen is a practicing emergency physician who previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner. She's out with a new book called Lifelines, and she's launching a newsletter for Post Opinions called The Checkup. Here's our chat adapted from last week's Twitter Spaces live event. Dr. Wen, how are you? Hi, James. How are you? I have never done Twitter spaces or frankly, really know what this platform is. So hopefully you can hear me. I can hear you just fine. And I admit I have not either. So it's uh, it's fun to experiment with new things and, and to talk to new audiences. And obviously, this is such an important topic and it's only becoming more so by the day. As I was preparing for our conversation here, I was scanning through the archives of your columns for us. It just struck me how you've been so painfully prescient. Um, just in May, you had a bunch of headlines that kind of are, are painful to read right now. We could see a comeback of COVID if we don't get more Americans vaccinated right now. The CDC shouldn't have removed mask restrictions without requiring proof of vaccination. The CDC's mask guidance is a mess. Biden needs to clean it up. On May 25th, you wrote, the pandemic isn't over, especially for our children. And now, you know, the, this Delta variant is just keeps getting worse. And today, the World Health Organization Director General suggested that unless things change, the world could see 100 million more cases of COVID by the early months of next year, up from 200 million right now, to put it in perspective. The CDC has finally recommended that pregnant women be vaccinated against the coronavirus, updating its advice after a study found no increased risk of miscarriage among those who've received the shots uh, but just 23% of pregnant women have received at least one shot of, of vaccine. What did you make of, of this news? Well, frankly, I had thought that the CDC a while ago already made this recommendation. And so I, I when I when I saw the headline come up on my phone, I thought, oh, well, that's correct and absolutely is the right recommendation. I just thought that it, it, it had been made months ago because it, it is what OBGYNs, the um, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the Society of uh, Maternal and Fetal Medicine, our head medical organizations have all been saying this. And I think we know two things down to be true. And both taken together are really important. One is that Pregnant women are at increased risk for severe outcomes if they are to contract COVID-19. They're at higher risk for being hospitalized, for being in intensive care, for preterm birth, um, for having adverse outcomes in their pregnancy and for themselves. And also we know that the vaccines are safe and effective in pregnant women. We now have many studies that have illustrated how effective the vaccines are and also that there are no adverse outcomes, no increased stillbirth or miscarriage or other negative outcomes from the vaccines. And so I think the evidence at this point is really clear that the benefits far, far outweigh any theoretical risk. Absolutely. The, the second piece of news this afternoon is that California has mandated that teachers and other school employees must either be vaccinated against COVID or submit to regular testing. What's your reaction to the news out of your home state? 
Well, I grew up in California. My mother was a longtime second grade teacher in LA Unified School District. She's no longer alive now. But I can only imagine if she were alive, she would be absolutely in favor of this, as am I. Um, we talked throughout the pandemic, and I've written many columns about this, about the importance of protecting our teachers, that it's our obligation to safeguard our teachers who are essential workers and who are putting themselves out there to try to teach our, our kids in person. We did a lot to try to protect our, our teachers. And now we also have to recognize that teachers and staff have an obligation too to protect our students, many of whom are not yet able to be vaccinated. Now is one of the most dangerous times in the pandemic for children because of the actions of adults. And in fact, we as adults, and that includes teachers, but also parents and relatives and, and daycare staff and really anyone who's going to be around any children at all, we as adults have an obligation to be vaccinated so that we can protect our children. We should not expect our children to sacrifice on our behalf. You talk about how the pandemic has become more dangerous for children and here's what to do to keep them safe. And you have some suggestions. Can you talk about sort of the, the action items in there? What's different about now compared to December and January is that the restrictions are not back. I mean, despite the CDC now finally doing what they should have done back in May, which was to say that we need indoor mask mandates because we can't trust the unvaccinated to put on masks, um, even though it's now recommended that 98% of the American public should be living in places with indoor mask mandates. That's certainly not the case. And so we don't have restrictions in place. And in addition, many schools are coming back without the same protocols that they did before. We don't have distancing for, for example, in many schools, because otherwise you can't have in-person learning for everyone full time and, and not hybrid. And so I really worry about this, that we've let down our guard while at the same time we have the Delta variant surging. And so if there are schools that still are not engaging in masking as a requirement, parents can contact one another and try to make it a norm in that particular classroom or still trying to go outdoors as much as possible. That being outdoors is also highly protective. And that's something that we as parents should keep in mind for our children. The guest this week on the, our new podcast, Please Go On, is Dr. Carly Simon, who's the superintendent of the Lachua County Public Schools, which is kind of Gainesville, Florida. And she's defying the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis' executive order by requiring kids to wear masks. You know, the governor is saying he's going to cut off her salary. And but then you, you, you know, you have the flip side of like what we're talking about in California. How do you think this is going to affect educational outcomes this year? I mean, it, it feels like a lot of places there's less protection for kids than there were last school year. I think it's going to really depend on what happens. I mean, the best case scenario is that we as a country just get really lucky. As in, you see what happened in the UK, in India, where inexplicably there was a huge Delta surge and then a decline. And there are people, including former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who think that it's possible that maybe we're seeing a peak now. This is going to be the last wave that we see, and maybe we'll have a pretty normal school year. I mean, that would be fantastic. I hope that that's the case, but hope is not a good strategy for us to pin our hopes on or to pin everything on. I mean, there are other things that could happen as well. I suspect that we're going to see a very wide range when it comes to what schools look like, as in, paradoxically, <laughs> the parts of the country 
that have high vaccination rates and relatively lower coronavirus cases, they're also the places that are the most likely to put in indoor mask mandates in schools and to have really good testing and improve ventilation. Those places probably will have a very successful school year because we know that schools can be safe if the level of community transmission is relatively low, if people are getting vaccinated, if we're also doing masking and other protective measures. So I think that's going to happen. I think we're going to see one of two things happen in other locations, including in Texas and Florida and these other places that are not requiring mask, masks and, in fact, are preventing mask mandates very actively for inexplicable reasons to, to me. But I think that you could see outbreaks. You could see parents potentially pulling the, their kids out of school or the schools having such large outbreaks that they close. I think you could also see something else, which is that these schools essentially stop tracking cases. I'm really worried about this. Texas, as an example, has recently said, again, totally in violation of every public health principle, they're not encouraging or requiring contact tracing. They're not requiring schools to even tell parents if there is an infection inside their classroom. And we may get into a situation where there may be tons of infections, but nothing really happens. And maybe that's one way to keep schools open. But certainly that is not advisable from a public health standpoint. What do we know right now about the likelihood of breakthrough infections? Should we be living differently knowing what we know about Delta right now? We don't know a lot, frankly, about mild breakthrough infections. The good news is we know a lot about severe breakthrough infections. The CDC has been collecting data on on these. And I think the astounding news about this is that we we know that even now, even with a Delta variant, that 99% plus of those who are dying from COVID are people who are unvaccinated, that if you are vaccinated, your chance of getting COVID that's severe enough to cause hospitalization or death is reduced by 25 fold. I mean, that's by itself, that should be enough motivation for people to get the vaccine. And that's ultimately why vaccines are developed to prevent severe illness. But that said, we still have this lack of clarity about how frequent asymptomatic infections or mildly symptomatic infections are in uh, in individuals who've been vaccinated. And part of that, again, is the inexplicable decision, in this case by the CDC, to stop tracking mild breakthrough infections. They made that announcement back in May, and I think that's something that a lot of people in public health, including myself, struggle to understand. I mean, in a way, it's as basic as asking people when they get tested for COVID. You mentioned, you know, who, who knows if you have a headache or a fever, how do you know if it's COVID or not? Well, get tested. We have a lot of testing available. It's pretty easy to ask people at the time they get tested, have you been vaccinated? When were you vaccinated? With what vaccine? If you have those information, that would actually tell us a lot about when breakthroughs are occurring, how long after vaccination are certain types of people, for example, elderly individuals with chronic medical conditions, are they having more breakthroughs? Are people with Johnson & Johnson more likely to get breakthroughs than than, than people with, with Moderna or Pfizer? I mean, we're missing all that information and that's not good. But um, here's how I would think about it to, to the second part of your question, how people should change their their lives. I think that people who are generally healthy and are fully vaccinated could very well make the decision that if they're healthy, they're vaccinated, everybody in their household is vaccinated or they live alone, they could say, hey, I don't want to change anything from what I've been doing these last few months because 
I am okay with the idea of getting mild illness. If the worst that happens is that I get cold-like symptoms and a fever, I can deal with that. I'm still going to go to Provincetown. I'm still going to go to all these other, you know, to all these other things because I'm okay with that risk. The value of these activities outweigh the risk. And I, from a public health standpoint, I'm okay with that. There was an Israeli study that found that, or the the data from, from the Israeli Ministry of Health found that 80% of those with breakthrough infections do not transmit COVID to anyone else in public. 10% only give it to one other person. 2 to 3% give it to 2 to 3 other people. And the rest of the 7%, we, we don't have data for it. But all this is to say, you are not a public health threat if you've been vaccinated. However, if you live at home with somebody who is unvaccinated, for example, our young children or somebody who's immunocompromised, you should take additional precautions because your chance of being a carrier to people who you live with are higher. And so, for example, for me and for my husband, we're not going to go to indoor restaurants. We'll go to outdoor restaurants, but not indoor restaurants. If it were just us, we might make a different choice. But because we have two young unvaccinated children, we will be wearing masks at all times when we are indoors around unvaccinated or potentially unvaccinated people. President Biden acknowledged yesterday that he has not used his full authority as president to push people to get vaccinated. You mentioned kind of the mistakes that the CDC has made in not collecting the data that it kind of obviously should to help track all these different things. You know, we we hear a lot about following the science and it's a nice slogan, but what more do you think that the administration could be doing or should be doing? And, and are they listening to the scientists? Well, I actually think that they are deferring too much to the CDC. And here's what I mean in this case. I think the CDC is a phenomenal public health entity. It is great at the science. The data that are coming out of the CDC are exceptional, and we absolutely should hold that to the highest standard. In fact, people around the world train at the CDC. They name their own um, top public health entities after the CDC because of the quality of science coming from it. I think, though, that there have been a lot of messaging missteps from the CDC. Um, what happened in May I think was the single biggest mistake of the Biden administration when it comes to the COVID response, which is essentially opening the floodgates, trusting the honor code that was never going to work and saying, I mean, basically unvaccinated people started doing what vaccinated people were doing and not following any, any restrictions on their behavior. The CDC continues to have missteps on messaging. And I actually think that the Biden administration needs to rein them in and needs to say, you all are the experts on, on science. But public health is not just about science. Public health is also about winning over hearts and minds. And if you get the communication and the policy wrong, people are not going to trust you. It doesn't matter if you have great science that people don't believe you. And so I think the Biden administration needs to say um, that follow the science needs to be separate from listening to only one scientific institution. And then I also think the Biden administration needs to go a lot further on one in one element, which is proof of vaccination. I actually think we are where we are now because the Biden administration did not much earlier get behind vaccine verification. It's ridiculous that they're that we're still relying on this white piece of paper from the CDC that's that people can counterfeit. We have the technology to be able to do this. I mean, we don't you know, when you go to the airport at TSA checkpoint, you don't say, well, here's this piece of paper 
of where I'm born. You know, we, we actually have other ways of verifying identification because we don't trust people with something as sensitive as getting on a plane. Well, why should we trust them with something as sensitive as being able to infect other people with COVID? So I think getting behind proof of vaccination, I really hope that the Biden administration finally gets behind. Uh, now let's move on to the audience Q&A portion. We'll start with Lisa Stoutmoose. Uh, you should be unmuted and you can ask your question now. Thank you, Dr. Wen. You are the best. I love you so much. I was wondering how many people um, will end up in the hospital from COVID-19 if every person over age two were to social distance and wear a mask in the presence of other people at all times. I mean, I asked this question because Spanish flu ended in 15 months with only masks. Masks physical distancing, these types of measures we know are effective, right? Quarantining, isolation. Just because we now have the vaccine, just because we now have treatments for COVID, doesn't mean that these other methods have gone away. In fact, these other methods remain really important. And especially for our children who cannot yet be vaccinated, these are the measures that we really need to employ. Being outdoors, by the way, and improving ventilation, that's something else that's really important to try to keep our children and people safe. I think you make a good point that if everyone is, from what I understand of your question, if everyone does physical distancing, if we all only stay in our household units, Yes, you're right. We will absolutely end this pandemic. I mean, that's just science. Um, the virus jumps from person to person. So if you stop its transmission in its tracks and it doesn't have the opportunity to go from person to person, absolutely, we will have the opportunity to end this pandemic. The only problem is even during our so-called lockdowns back last March and April, we were not actually practicing this. We have already seen in the U.S. that we're not capable of using, relying on non-pharmaceutical interventions the way that other countries have. But I strongly believe that for our society here in the U.S., the vaccines are our best and only way out of the pandemic. And that's because we as a society, we are not a mask wearing culture. I wish that we were. I wish that masks were not politicized as they were, but we're not going to get people to stay at home. I mean, at this point, restrictions, lockdowns are just not, they're a non-starter. And there's no reason for us to propose something that I think is impractical. And that goes back to the previous point about public health. Even if we can end the pandemic through these non-pharmaceutical interventions, if people are literally not willing to do it, we're not going to succeed. And so that's why I do believe that vaccines, medium and longer term, are our way out of the pandemic. But we still need to rely on basic interventions, including what you mentioned of masking. It looks like our uh, next question is from uh, the culinarian. My name is Michael. And I have a question about mandating vaccines. I mean, we, we have done it before with uh, polio and stuff. And uh, I'm wondering why we aren't doing that. And what is taking so long to vaccinate these children from age two on up when we know they're going to school and it's a potential disaster with them getting infected? Several things. One is I very much agree with you that we should start talking about the COVID vaccine as we do vaccines for other illnesses, because frankly, that's what it is. Co uh, coronavirus is a virus. We have other vaccine preventable illnesses. We have vaccines developed that are safe and effective. We have one here, too. I mean, it's it's really we need to start talking about this the same way 
And I think that's what you said is an important reminder of, of why that's the case, because we have routine immunizations for other things. So why are we having such a big issue with the COVID vaccine? I do think that one of the problems is that the COVID vaccine has not yet received full FDA approval. Right now, it has emergency use authorization. Um, as Dr. Fauci says, it is as good as approved. I think a lot of us do wonder why it has not been approved yet. It, it would be nice to have some more transparency from the FDA. For example, I would love to have the FDA say, hey, here's a checklist of 50 things that have to be done before full approval. We have now met 40 out of 50. We're still working on five. Here are five more that are not in yet, and they have to do with manufacturing and storage, but they don't have anything to do with safety and effectiveness, which we now know are, we're certain about. I mean, it would be nice to have that level of transparency, but nevertheless, I believe that we will have um, the word from the FDA pretty soon. By the end of the month is the best estimate that, that we've heard. And I think after that, we are going to see many more vaccine mandates because there are companies and universities that may have been hesitant because of the full approval issue that will not be anymore. So I, I do think we're, we're going to see a change occurring after full approval. Your last point, um, I, I do want to directly address as someone who treats kids and also who has two young kids. Uh, I have a one-year-old and an almost four-year-old. So I think a lot about vaccinations for children and, as you mentioned, the dangers of children who are going back to school also. Right now, the clinical trials are ongoing. The clinical trials are age de-escalation studies, meaning that we study younger, progressively younger age groups. The results should be coming out pretty soon, I hope, for five to 11-year-olds and then three to five-year-olds and then younger still. Now, I do want the studies to be done thoroughly. I think that there is a potential danger to having results coming out too soon. And then if there isn't trust in the process, then we could actually hamper vaccine progress later on. And so I do want to make sure that nothing, that no regulatory steps are skipped or even that there is any appearance of regulatory steps being being skipped. That said, I also think that there should be renewed urgency. Look, we don't want regulatory steps to be skipped, but we do want the development of the vaccines to be prioritized because we know that children can, be, can become very ill. Sadly, children have died. And um, if we want our kids to be back in school, one of the best ways to ensure that they can do so is through vaccination. Uh, the, the next question is from Shoshana Ungerleader. Um, hi, Dr. Wen. Thanks so much for this having this conversation. Um, what can, well, I'm a physician also and I'm very frustrated by the amount of misinformation out there, as many of us are. From your perspective, what can individuals do to combat misinformation? even within their own families or friends and on social media? How do you think about this um, from an individual perspective? I love your question because I think so often we feel really frustrated during this pandemic. And sometimes the words that are coming out of, of our anger and frustration sound like blame. And when people hear that level of blame, it may they may tune out and it may not be, get us to this proactive space of, well, what can we do now? And I do strongly believe that there are things that we can each do. So much of what we talk about in public health is about the most trusted messenger, knowing that the message is important, but so is the messenger. Well, I would wager that all of us are the most trusted messenger to someone in our lives. It may be our neighbor, it may be a colleague, it may be a childhood friend, somebody is out there who will value our input. And just as we do as physicians in talking to our patients, 
I would definitely advise that when we talk to our friends who may have misconceptions or may even be spreading misinformation, that we approach them with compassion, with empathy, not with judgment. Try to understand where they're coming from. And instead of saying, oh, that's really stupid, <laughs> right? I mean, we wouldn't talk that way to our friend. Let's understand where people are coming from and try to address them with the values that are important in their lives. So for example, if somebody is not getting the vaccine, but they have an elderly parent that they're caring for. Perhaps we can talk about the danger that they may be posing to their elderly parent. If they have specific concerns, we can try to find other people who may be even more trusted in their lives. For example, maybe they won't listen to you if you're a non-medical person about, um, about infertility myth and some other myths about side effects. But maybe they will listen to their child's pediatrician or somebody else. And so making those connections for people will be really important too. Now, I do think that it's maybe a little bit different over social media. We each have an obligation to share accurate information. And perhaps we can also help people in our lives to share accurate information too, by at least stopping to think before we click retweet, before we click share in some way or like or whatever else, that maybe we can look up the source of that information if it's in doubt, maybe we can check it out with other credible sources. And I think that ultimately it is going to be up to each and every one of us to, to play a part in the solution as well. For the final question to close us out here, let's go to, to J-Rod. As a former athlete and now is a full-time as father and whatnot, I have two children and I just want to know as far as going in, as far as this time around, I feel like this is like a second term of what we're experiencing as far as COVID and now with the um, Delta variant, what do we have to prepare ourselves leading into it? I have a bit of skepticism that I just would like to see if anybody can address as far as to calm my, to my worriness and whatnot. Hey, J-Ron. Um, I first wanted to say that I went to medical school in St. Louis at the time that you were with the Cardinals. And so I'm a fan of yours. And so I'm really glad to to uh, to, to hear from you. And also, I, I want to make sure that I get your question right. I mean, from what I understand, you were talking about the risks of unvaccinated children and also being around unvaccinated kids. Right now, the uh, President Biden, the CDC, has been calling this pandemic a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And by and large, I agree. I mean, the vast majority of people who are getting infected with COVID-19, who are transmitting COVID-19, are the unvaccinated. Now, some of these individuals are unvaccinated by choice. Many of these individuals, though, are our children. I mean, in the last week that we have data for, the American Academy of Pediatrics reported 93,000 infections in children in one week here in the U.S. We now have over 200 children being hospitalized every day across the U.S. because of COVID-19. And so this is certainly something that's affecting our children. Now, I would recommend that if there are unvaccinated children around other unvaccinated children, the best place for them to be is outdoors. I have my kids when they're on playdates outdoors or playing sports outdoors with other kids I don't think it's necessary for them to wear masks. That's because indoors are much um, higher risk than outdoors. And I think it's important to preserve the locations that you think are the highest risk and say, wear masks in indoor spaces, but you don't need to be wearing masks in outdoor spaces. Um, if you are an adult and you are around younger kids, 
the most important thing for you to protect yourself is to be vaccinated yourself. That's protecting you. That's protecting the kids. I think if you are outdoors and maybe you're playing baseball with, with them, um, then I don't think that there's a particular danger if you are outdoors and you're vaccinated your, your, yourself. If you're going to be indoors with unvaccinated children who are not in your household, I would recommend wearing a mask, at least a three-ply surgical mask, but ideally an N95 or KN95 if you're going to be around unvaccinated people. Um, we really enjoyed this conversation. Please stay tuned for more Twitter Spaces chats in the future. And, and thank you, Dr. Wen. Thank you. Great to join you. And I will look forward to your podcast and, and, and writing as always, James. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Please Go On. It was produced by Julie Deppenbrock and Sharla Freeland with editing from Allison Michaels. The episode was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. You can listen and follow us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. The link to sign up for Dr. Wen's newsletter for Post Opinions, The Checkup, is in the show notes. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back Friday with a regular episode of the podcast because there's always more to say. <laughs>